Yeah, Cole um, shared about joy because this Sunday, the Advent candle, it, it represents joy. And, and yet we sing this song, Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. Yet for many of us, Christmas isn't all that joyful of a season, right? There are just so many things that we have to do there. The kids' programs are trying to get their Christmas cards, buying Christmas gifts, going shopping. If you Christmas is at your house, preparing your house, getting that ready. And there are just so many things to do, and we are just so busy. A lot of times, we don't have that joy in Christmas. And for some of you are, who are new, who don't know me or my career, before I was a pastor, I was in the airline industry. And I worked at Continental Air, for Continental Airlines, which is now United, but I worked at LAX in passenger service. And over my years there, we learned to dislike Thanksgiving and Christmas. Trust me, we were more like the Grinch then we were the Whovilles when it, uh, the Who's in um, the Grinch story when it came to Christmas. Why? Because that is one of the busiest travel times of the year. And, and there's something that happens to people when they enter the door of the airport. They just change. You know, they're nervous. They're on edge. They're anxious. And who do they take it out on? Us. You know, and so after a while, you're kind of like fed up with that. And it's almost like, man, if you give me a hard time, I ain't going to sit you next to a screaming child from here to Hawaii. You know, or I'm going to send your bags to Timbuktu. You know, and hopefully it'll take a week for you to get them. And part of it, you know, it was tough. And when, when I became a supervisor, it came even, became even worse because I got the most difficult passengers. All right. I, you know, I could tell you, you know, how many times I was yelled at, cussed at and all of that. But it was during Christmas and Thanksgiving when it was the worst. And of course, they never gave us time off because it was the busiest time of the year. And there was really no joy uh, for us during that time. And, you know, I was misguided because even though I was a believer the joy that I would experience or that I thought was based on circumstances, right? It was based on circumstances. So when things went well at the airport, oh, I, I felt good. But when things fell, fell apart, which they normally did, especially when these flights going back to the East Coast with all the weather, there was definitely no joy in my life. And today we're going to learn that joy, really, the joy of the Lord is not based on circumstances. And that's a good thing, because if you were to think, if for those of you sitting here right now, what's your joy level right now on a scale of 1 to 10? You know, are you joyful anticipating Christmas? Or are you more like, man, there's so much to do. How am I going to do it? And so you're the, your anxiety level is really high. So where are you? And today we're going to learn that this joy could come no matter what your circumstances are. And we're going to take a look at two groups of individuals who pretty much were experiencing the same thing, but one had joy and the other didn't. And so could you turn your Bibles to Matthew 2, starting from uh, verse 1, and we're going to look at the passage that co-read. And it says, starting with verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. What do you notice here? How many Magi or wise men were there? Three? Yeah, we sing this song, you know, we three kings of Orient are. And where do we get three from? You know, the Bible tells us that all that we know is that magic came from the East, right? You know, it's through tradition that, you know, it was believed that there were three. But we don't know that. All we know is that magi came from the East to Jerusalem. And so we see the two characters or two groups of individuals here. The first one was King Herod. Now, King Herod had some good traits. He was intelligent, and he was an accomplished warrior. He was a skillful politician and an outstanding city planner, right? And he was an effective diplomat. And so when um, the Israelites would go through a time of, uh, uh, when they didn't have food and a time of trouble, he would take gold and he would give them to the people to help them. And so he was an effective diplomat, but he also had some pretty bad traits, right? One was that he was cruel and he was merciless, right? He was incredibly jealous and suspicious of any person or anything that threatened his position. So much so that he actually had his wife executed, he had his mother-in-law executed, and he executed all of his sons. Why? Because he was so paranoid that they would take his position of power that he had his own family executed. And that was the type of person that he was. So here we have King Herod. Okay, Then we have the Magi that came from the east. Now their history was probably influenced in, by Daniel, and we see that in Daniel chapter 2. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, and if you go back to your history, remember um, the, uh, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And then the northern kingdom was uh, scattered by Assyria and was no more. However, when Judah disobeyed God, what happened? um, The Israelites were exiled to Babylon, okay? So they were uh, lived in captivity in Babylon. So this is in Daniel. This is a time when they were in captivity in Babylon, and many of us know Daniel. But the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, had this dream that he couldn't interpret, and he was troubled by it. So he called all of his wise men or magi to interpret the dream. And they couldn't. They said, King, uh, not only did he want them to interpret the dream, he says, I'm not even going to tell you the dream. Right? And so I want you to tell me what my dream was and interpret that. And all of his wise men said, You know, King, you know, that's just impossible. There is no one. That can do this. You are asking way too much. And the king was furious. And so he was going to execute all of them because they were supposed to be the wise men, the magi, the magicians. They were the ones that were supposed to know. And here comes Daniel. And Daniel comes and says, you know what, king? I alone by myself can't do this. But through the power of God, I will not only tell you your dream, 
and I will interpret it. And so Daniel did that. He told King Nebuchadnezzar his dream, and he interpreted what the meaning was. And the Nebuch- King Nebuchadnezzar was so grateful and amazed by this that he promoted Daniel to be in charge of all of the wise men or the magi. Okay. However, remember King Nebuchadnezzar was going to have them all executed? Well, Daniel pleaded with the king and said, please do not execute them. And so out of favor to Daniel, the, uh, the wise men um, were not executed. And so Daniel played, was seen held in high regard with all the wise men. And, there's probably, and theologians believe that because of this, they knew about the Messiah or the coming or the prophecies of the Messiah through Daniel. But remember, you know, a few Sundays ago, we, we were going over the history of Israel and what, who conquered um, Babylon next? It was the uh, Persians, the Medes and the Persians. And this is where we see uh, King Darius. And this is where Daniel is most known for Daniel and what? The lion's den. And because Daniel was, because God spared Daniel, he also, the king elevated him to a place of power and prestige. So we see Daniel's influence in the Persian uh, Empire, which was, a, which conquered the rest of the world. And that it was not only King Darius, but King Cyrus. So we see Daniel's position here. And so not, no doubt that Daniel, as he, um, communicated with the Magi, he told them about the prophecies of the Messiah. And um, what happened is, most likely, is the Jewish people started intermarrying with the Persians, and their, um, the stories about the coming Messiah, or the Messianic prophecies, probably became a part of their culture. And it probably lasted all the way to the New Testament period. And so this is why these Magi knew about this prophecy. And basically, we think it goes back to uh, Daniel. And so, but they were also powerful and influential people. Throughout their entire history, because they were there, um, kings saw them as people with extraordinary power to see the future and um, do that that they held um, power and they were very influential. So these are the two players that are in this story. And let's go to verse 2. And ask, and the magic, where is the one who has born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now when we take a look at this, we don't believe this was an actual star because we see the star moving around and stopping over um, uh, Bethlehem and over the house where Jesus was. You know, we believe that uh, when the uh, authors were writing about the star, they were basically saying the radiance of God, which show, shone brighter than the sun. And that's what it was. It was the glory of the God, glory of God. And verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And, and you could see this guy who was insanely jealous or very, very wary of people who um, claimed or who rumored to be taking his 
power away from him. He is very suspicious of that. And so here these wise men, powerful, influential people, come from the east and said, where is this person, the king of the Jews? So of course we could see Herod being very disturbed. But all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Why? Because whenever Herod had experienced a situation where there was a threat to his power, he was just a maniac. And we see this um, later on in the story when um, he couldn't find Jesus. And so he was, so the wise men, instead of reporting back to um, King Herod as to the whereabouts of Jesus, God told him to go another way. And what did um, King Herod do. He was so furious that he killed every baby boy in Jerusalem under the age of two. So whenever King Herod was, felt threatened, everybody, everybody felt his wrath. And this is why Jerusalem was probably pretty nervous. Also, he, they were probably pretty nervous because when the Magi came, they probably came with a large entourage of soldiers and servants. So they thought, okay, is there going to be uprising? Is there going to be a riot? But, either, but we see King Herod being disturbed. And when he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, reply, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, Report to me, so that I may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them, and until it stopped over the place where the child was. And this is one of the reasons we don't believe this was an actual star, but this was a reference to the glory of God. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their, their treasures and presented him with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so we see the two players here. We see both Herod and and the Magi, they were both powerful and they were both influential people. They were both looking for Jesus. And they were both looking for Jesus because they claimed that they wanted to worship them, worship Jesus. However, we know from the story that it was the Magi or the wise men who truly wanted to worship Jesus. And King Herod only wanted to find Jesus in order to execute um, Jesus. And both knew the prophecies of Jesus. So they had certain things in common. So why did the Magi experience joy and not King Herod? And this is a very important question 
for us to ask ourselves because the answer to this question might explain why we aren't experiencing joy this Christmas season. Or in the Bible, it says that we are to be characterized by joy. Why we don't experience joy when times get difficult. The reason King Herod did not experience joy because he believed Jesus was a threat to his way of life. The reason King Herod did not experience joy because he believed that Jesus was a threat to his way of life. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt that Jesus, that following Jesus was a threat to your way of life? You know, we all experience this from time to time. And one of the ways I experienced this is in the form of tithing. When I thought following Jesus was a threat to the way to my way of life. And it started off when we were children and I was a little kid, you know, in elementary school. You know, my parents gave us a quarter. And we what we were supposed to do, we were supposed to take that quarter and place it in the tithing plate when it came around. And I and it was so hard for me to do that. Because back then a quarter could get you a lot of candy. And you could buy a lot of these big Hershey bars with 25 cents. You could go to Thrifties. And how, you remember how much one scoop of ice cream cost? Five cents. So you could get a scoop of ice cream for five cents. And so for 25 cents, man, you could buy a lot of ice cream, right? And if I pocketed that 25 cents as it got older and I held out for another week and pocketed that quarter... I could go to McDonald's and buy a Big Mac for 50 cents, right? And so as I put the, my 25 cents in the offering plate, I thought, oh my goodness, there's so many things I could buy with this. You know, and it's not like my parents gave us a lot of money. So it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm giving this to Jesus, but I don't get any, I, I could use this for candy. You know, I thought this was a threat. Following Jesus was a threat to my way of life. And as I got older, that number just increased, right? Because I go 10%. Man, you know what I could do with 10%? Now, we know that in the New Testament, you know, there's no percentage in tithing. It says, give with a generous and cheerful heart, right? And so as I got older and started giving, the numbers just started getting bigger and bigger, right? And when you're not walking with the Lord, you are starting to calculate, gosh, how much could, well, I could have bought this. Man, I could have, you know, stopped driving this old beater of a car, and I could have purchased a new car, right? And so there are times when I felt that following Jesus was a threat to my way of life, right? Until I started to understand. And then I started to give out of following the uh, New Testament that God loves a cheerful giver and God loves a cheerful, uh, a generous giver. And so not only did I give to the church, I started giving to people who were in need. And I found out that it is more blessed to give than to receive, right? And I stopped counting how much I would have saved 
by not giving. But I was blessed. And to this day, I don't know how God did it. Because on paper, it looks like, man, we're not going to make it. You know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to swing this? But God provides. God provides. But how many times have you seen Jesus as a threat to the way of your uh, life, right? We take a look at the Bible, and we view some of their teachings as a threat to what we want to do. And we tell ourselves, well, you know what? It really doesn't mean that, right? That interpretation that Pastor Dave gave, that was just wrong, you know? I'm sure he didn't mean that, that God didn't mean that. So I'll probably interpret it a different way. Or, you know, we compromise saying, you know what? It's not that bad considering what other people, you know, have done or other believers do that or the worst, the very worst thing we could do when Jesus or following uh, Jesus as a disciple threatens our way of life is by saying, I'm forgiven anyway. That is absolutely the worst thing you could do. And I've done that before. You know, when I was tempted to do something, and I just said, you know what? I'm forgiven anyway. And I didn't realize that I was taking advantage of God's grace. That Jesus Christ died and was beaten and shed his blood on the Christ for, uh, on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I, during a moment of temptation, I said, well, I'm forgiven anyway. Right? That's the worst that we could do. But sometimes even I went there when I felt that being a disciple of Jesus Christ threatened what I want to do. And what's the source of all of this? And I preached about this. It's pride. It's I want to do what I want to do. I know what's best for me. I know what's going to make me happy, you know, And if I follow God, I'm going to be miserable. I am the God of me. But you know what I've learned? And I pray that you learn this. Following God's teaching, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, does not threaten your way of life, but it's the best way for you to live your life. Why? Because God created us. Don't you think if God created us, the best way for us to live is to follow his manual? I mean, how many times have you bought something and it broke or it didn't work the way it did, right? So if you bought something from, let's say, Sony, and that appliance or whatever, that product didn't work well, right? You're not going to go to Samsung and look at the owner manual and say, well, what does it say about this? No, you are going to go back to Sony and you're going to look at your owner's manual that directly tells you how to possibly fix the product you have. And that's what the Bible is. God created us, right? The Bible is our manual. It is absolutely the best way for us to live our life. Following Jesus does not threaten our way of life. It is absolutely the best way for us to live our life. 
And we see this in Galatians 5.1. So turn with me to Galatians 5.1. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Now there was a problem in the church of Galatia where you had some Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through faith as a gift from God. But they were saying that that is not good enough. In order for you to continue to live out your salvation, you have to follow the law. Or the work. And this is the problem that um, they were causing in the church. They were saying it's Jesus plus. It's, you know, believing in Jesus plus following the law. And then they were having arguments because of this. And the Apostle Paul said, Jesus Christ came to free us from the consequences of the law. Why are you going back to slavery? It doesn't make sense. And it says in verse 13, for... You have called, been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. You know, God gives us grace. God gives us mercy. God gives us forgiveness of all of our sins. And so therefore, what? We could live a life of freedom, not having to live a life of guilt of what we've done in the past. Why? Because God has forgiven us for those things. But what does the Apostle Paul said? Do not use your freedom that God has given you to do things that satisfy your sinful nature. Okay, even though he has a, we have the freedom in Christ, he said do not use your freedom to follow your sinful nature, but do it to what? Serve one another in love. At the time, they were bickering and fighting one another. And he was saying, hey, you guys have freedom. Don't use it to fight. Use it to serve one another. As for the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, for those of you who are new to the church, how many of you thought that uh, Christianity was just about following a set of rules? Do's and don'ts? You know, that's the farthest thing from what God wants. He set us free from that, right? He wants a relationship. He wants us to have a relationship with us. This is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, to forgive us for the sins. But he also sent the Holy Spirit to live inside each one of us, to guide us into how we are to live with that freedom. And it's not to satisfy sinful desires, but it was to love God and others. But Paul goes on to say in verse 15, But if you are biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Do you notice he didn't say follow the Spirit's leading in just the spiritual parts of our life? Just follow the Spirit's leading where... It seems easy and comfortable and convenient. No. The Apostle Paul says we are to follow the Spirit's leading, which is a journey in spiritual freedom in every aspect of our lives. The Magi experienced joy because they found Christ who 
as the prophet said, would be their ruler and shepherd. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will, be my she- who, who will shepherd my people. For the f- so the first thing we see, Jesus is a ruler or Lord. Well, and what does that mean? That we have a new boss. We have a new manager. We are no longer the boss of ourselves. That God is now our boss. And that we are to live for him. Why? Because it says here that Jesus Christ is our ruler. Right? And they got that. Unfortunately, today, for us living in a democracy and you know, living in a land of freedom and we have our rights, we think that, hey, we're the ones that make the decisions in our life. But according to this, what? We have a ruler. We have a ruler. We have a new Lord. And that's Jesus Christ, who will shepherd my people. And often God and Jesus are described in Scripture as a shepherd. And you think of all things, why a shepherd? Well, because sheep are, and, and we as Christians are also described or characterized as sheep. Right? Jesus and God is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. And it says, this one um, uh, commentator wrote, Sheep are basically helpless creatures who cannot survive long without a shepherd, upon whose care they are totally dependent. Likewise, sheep, we are totally dependent upon the Lord to shepherd, protect, and care for us. Sheep are essentially dumb animals that do not learn well or hear and are extremely difficult to train. Okay, the Bible calls us sheep, right? He uses the, probably one of the most dumbest animals in the world to describe us. They do not have good eyesight, nor do they hear well. They are very slow animals who cannot escape predators. They have no camouflage. You know, they're white, and everything around them is green or brown. Um, and no weapons for defense, such as claws, or sharp hooves, or powerful jaws, okay? They are totally, totally dependent on a shepherd for their care. And this is what the Bible is talking, says how our relationship is to be with God and Jesus, who is our shepherd. And as Maria said, one of her favorite verses is Psalm 23. So Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. Isn't that wonderful? That God as a shepherd will provide all that we need. Now there's a distinction between all that we need and all that we desire. But everything that we need to live a spiritual life, God will give it to us. He, le- he lets me rest in green meadows and he leads me beside peaceful streams because sheep will not sleep. They will not lie down when they're hungry or afraid. That's why the shepherd has to lead them to pastures, green pastures, where they could eat. Because if they're hungry, they will not sleep. And he has to be there to protect them because if they feel anxious, they cannot sleep. And he leads me beside peaceful streams because sheep need to um, drink by peaceful streams. Why? Because what happens when they drink and they go deeper, they don't realize that they're this big old sponge, right? And water starts soaking into the wool, and they become heavier 
and heavier and heavier to the point it's like, uh-oh, where did that guy go? Well, he was swept away, right? Because he was just too heavy and a powerful going just swept him away. And this is why shepherds also, when they got to a stream that was too uh, rough or too powerful, they would um, create a dam to allow the water to be peaceful. It says, he renews my strength. He guides me along the right path to bring honor to his name. You know, and praise God that, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus, following Jesus is not a threat to his life, to our way of life. Why? Because when God leads us, he leads us down the right path, which what? Bring honor to him. And isn't that, isn't that our goal as disciples of Jesus Christ, to bring honor and glory to God? Well, he provides a way for us to do this. And even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me, right? And so what's he saying here? That when we go through difficult times or when the sheep are in danger, the shepherd had two pieces of equipment, a rod, which is this big heavy stick that he used to protect the sheep against lions, wolves, or any predators. So he had this big wooden stick. So if any predators come, man, he would, take, he would use it to um, kill or um, dissuade a uh, predator from eating his, killing his sheep. But he also had a staff, and that's equipment that we're more familiar with. That's a piece of wood with a crooked on, hook on top. And what would happen when the sheep, and they often did that, they wandered off, and uh, they had very poor memory, and they would get lost. So the shepherd would go out and look for them. And sometimes they don't realize that if they go down a street cavern or there's a ditch, that they don't have the uh, equipment to walk back up. Right? So they'd go down there, and they'd get trapped. Well, what would the shepherd do? Shepherd would go use his staff, hook them around the neck or the body, and bring them to safety. And that's what God does for us. He protects us from our enemies, but he also, when we get ourselves into danger, what does he do? He gently takes his staff, and he clears us from that. Right? You know, the shepherds in the Bible faced incredible dangers in caring for their sheep. They put their own lives at risk. And this is how much they cared for the sheep. And it says in verse 5, You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. Surely, goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in in the house of the Lord forever. You know, the prophet said that Jesus was going to be our shepherd. Does following this shepherd, does this look like it's a threat to your way of life? Because if you and I believe that there are certain areas in our lives when we're looking at Scripture and we look at that and we go, oh, I'm not, I don't want to do that. This is a threat to what I want to do. We are not going to be or not going to experience the joy that the wise men experienced when they saw Jesus. The way we experience joy is when we look at God as our ruler and our shepherd, just like 
the prophet said. So what's our weekly challenge this week? I want us to read Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12, Galatians, the entire chapter 5, and Psalm 23 this week. Okay, And ask God to identify any areas where you feel Jesus is a threat to your lifestyle. Or being, ask God to say, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are there any areas in my life right now where I view following Scripture as a threat to my way of life? And take an action step to submit to your to submit to submit to God each in each of these areas. And finally, ask God to be your ruler and shepherd every morning this week. So when you get up, ask God to be your ruler and your shepherd every morning this week. Would you please join me in prayer and worship team, please come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, I know there are so many times in our lives, especially this season where it's supposed to be a season, Father, that's supposed to be characterized by joy, and joy is the last thing that we feel. Father, we're busy, you know, we're stressed. There's a lot of things going on in our lives, things that have to be done. And Father, we forget that our joy is not based on circumstances, but that our joy is based upon you. And that if we make you our ruler and our shepherd, Father, we can experience that peace. So as the worship team just plays in the background, I want you to spend a few moments right now just assessing your life. Are there any areas in your life right now where you view following God as a disciple of Jesus Christ is threatening what you want to do? So just take a few moments and ask God and assess your life if, there, if there's anything in your life that you feel is a threat to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, King Herod was such a suspicious individual where he viewed anyone or any person that threatened his way of life as something that had to be exterminated. And Father, because he cared so much about protecting his way of life, what he wanted, that he missed the miracle of the birth of the Savior. And he had no joy. But Father, here are these wise men who were powerful and influential. They humbled themselves to come and look 
for a savior. To look for the one who has prophesied to be the ruler and shepherd. And when they found Jesus, they bowed down to him and accepted him as their ruler and shepherd. And they experienced great joy. So, Father, for those of us who might be looking at certain areas of Scripture and maybe not wanting to follow them because they threaten our way of life, Father, may you let us know that the best way to live our life is to humble ourselves and put ourselves at the feet of the ruler who loves us, who cares for us, who wants the very best for us, and who wants us to live a life of freedom, free of guilt, and free of trying to work for and earn our salvation and to submit submit ourselves to the loving shepherd who risks all to make sure that we have all that we need. And so thank you, Father, that we can submit ourselves to you and experience that joy that only you can give us. And we praise you and we thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.